Well, if you've been lacking in a little enthusiasm for Christmas, um, how could you not get rid of that in these uh, first few minutes of uh, Advent worship here at Calvary? Welcome to Calvary Baptist Church. Thank you for joining us. Indeed, isn't that a good set thought for the rest of the month? Here comes heaven. Oh, what glory there is. And God made manifest in Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you for joining us today. We are happy that you are here and that you are with us as we pass through the joy and anticipation of the celebration of Advent, the Advent of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our friend and brother and his wife, Dan Lichty and Donna, have served uh, without any compensation and lived here away from their home in putting up the student activity center across the street and working on the elevator project. They went back home awaiting the supply chain uh, to come through and deliver the elevator, which shall come as we get to March. And while in Niceville, Florida, and after a test, it was determined, of course, that he would need open-heart surgery and the replacement of a heart valve, which will take place in the morning. Let's begin this experience together by asking for God's help for him, shall we? Father, we have grown to love Dan and Donna and will long remember their selflessness in being here under the Lord giving these months of their lives to you and to this ministry and our mission. They've been so helpful on a lot of fronts. And now our brother and his wife will pass through the providence this week of Dan's open heart surgery, moved now to first thing in the morning. I pray that as they would uh, find rest tonight, they might sense in small ways and big a palpable sense of your presence to help in an hour of need. And thank you for Dan's life. Thank you for his firm confidence in you. Remind Donna that you couldn't love them more or be more keenly interested in being their father in heaven, their shepherd to carry them through this and walk through this week. I pray, Lord, that the surgeon would have exacting judgment tomorrow as he goes through this procedure. I pray that he would have a good night of sleep and that through this whole experience, it may give rise to the opportunity for Dan and Donna to testify of the wonder of entrusting our lives to you and of finding in Jesus Christ our Lord such a sufficient Savior. We begin today praying for Dan, surgery tomorrow, and Donna by his side and their family, who would all be concerned and pass through this week. We pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Christmas preaching is a little difficult for me. We've been here before. We know the story. It is familiar to us. How can I make its glories shine afresh and again this year? In preparing my heart and in my own personal Bible reading, of all things, through the book of Daniel, uh, it occurred to me that the book of Daniel could be used as a lens through which to look and see the glories of Christmas. And so we 
Shao, thank you for being here this morning for this first of four messages in this Advent series, Christmas from Babylon. Why does Jesus' coming still matter? You watch with me and see if it isn't a helpful lens to set us up for God-pleasing worship as we pass through this great month and wonderful season of the year. One night in Louisville, my father found obstructions to his access to his daughter. Yes, he did. The obstructions were present, but he would not be denied that access. There was no effort that he would not expend to be with her on that evening. It's actually a story that I want to briefly tell you of a father surmounting obstacles to be next to his child. My sister played basketball for Murray State University in the late 70s. She was a great player. She's in their Hall of Fame. She played in all the great arenas, including in Freedom Hall several times against the University of Louisville. When she played, she played against a lady whose last name was Griffith, and her brother, Daryl Griffith, was a first-team All-American and in one of the better teams that Louisville's ever had. And so Jackie played at 5 o'clock, the men played at 7 o'clock, and it was a big game for the men. And so Freedom Hall was sold out that night. So my mom and dad drive from Springfield, Ohio. She was a long way away. They didn't get to see her play a lot in college, but Louisville was within striking distance, so they went there. They get there, and they're presented two tickets with a dilemma of four persons in the car. So my dad sent my mother and my sister into Freedom Hall while he was going to solve this riddle of getting other tickets, not knowing at the time that the game was sold out. There were no tickets available. Because dad was uh, helping Andy, my now wife, get in so she could sit with the family entourage they wanted to be together. So he goes to the ticket counter and says, hey, I need to buy two tickets. And, and, and the clerk said, look, I, I'm sorry, sir, there's no tickets left. Well, he would not be forestalled by that. He prosecuted the conversation and got absolutely nowhere. And it concluded with, could I please speak to your manager right now? Now, that song was repeated repeatedly as he went from the up the chain of command in the ticket structure, up the chain of command in the uh, security structure, and up the chain. He may have spoken to the guardian of Freedom Hall for that event that night, but he was adamant in pursuing every means necessary to get in. Finally, and I think it was like one of those stories of the importune widow who wouldn't quit praying, so the judge, just to get rid of her, gave her a couple tickets. Uh, no, <laughs> no, the judge didn't give her tickets. He granted her request. But to get rid of my dad, the, the, the guy gave my dad a couple tickets. So he got into the game. It might, uh, very, very, very uncharacteristically of my dad. He never does something. He was so annoyed by this whole process and everything. As soon as the game, the women's game was over, he was done with Freedom Hall. He walked out, and there's a bunch of people trying to get in. They're all jammed. He scalped the tickets and, you know, went, got in his car and went home, you know. That's the story of a father who would surmount any obstacle to be with his child. If you understand my father's earnestness in creating access to relate to his daughter, 
You understand Christmas and this morning's message. Come with me to Daniel chapter 2. God forged a glorious access to him at Christmas. The book of Daniel is the story of the people of God in exile. Daniel chapter 1 is the story of the first deportation of people. It was the elite, the aristocracy, the leaders described in Daniel 1, 3, and 4 as bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family, of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. That's Daniel 1.4. I was always amused. That was the name of an intramural basketball team at Dallas Theological Seminary, Daniel 1.4. I thought, well, why did they that? You know, then, then I read it. And, oh, okay, that's why they wanted to be called Daniel 1.4. That's Daniel. Daniel chapter 1 is a story of uh, Daniel taking umbrage with the fact that um, he was fed non-kosher food. And he said, hey, this is not going to work. I will dishonor the Lord to eat the king's food. And uh, the steward got all upset with him. And Daniel 1 is a story of how Daniel said, you, you, you try me. You let me try it for 30 days. We'll see how it is. Daniel shined above the rest. And he and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego emerge as the leading counselors to the king. Enter Daniel chapter 2. Let me read the first 16 verses to you. In the second year, the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream." Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses be laid in ruins. Just as a sidebar, he is very exercised about not sleeping and this startling dream that he has had. Back into chapter 2 and verse 6. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demands. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose 
dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to, declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. Hear the word of the Lord. Now this morning, I want to go two different directions. First, I know it may feel at first awkward. It won't as we go through it. I want to look at Christmas in Babylon through Daniel chapter 2. Secondly, I want to answer the question from Daniel chapter 2, why does Christmas matter? That's our plan of attack. Where does Christmas show up, of all things, in Daniel chapter 2? For those still on the fence about this Christmas plan, Christmas from Babylon, let's go forward. Let me persuade you that it's going to be worthwhile. Let me think about Christmas in three different directions. First, the people of God are marooned in exile in Babylon. That's where we are in redemption history. Where we, in God's story of redemption, were 600 years before the birth of Jesus. What has happened is that Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30 have been proved true. If you open your Bible to those three chapters, it says above them, blessings and cursings. God told Abraham's children, if you obey me, I shall bless you. If you curse me, you shall be cursed. If you sustain a cursed life, I'll take you out of this land that I gave to Abraham. But I shall bring you back out of my faithfulness to Abraham Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30, the backbone of the Old Testament, shows up here because the people of God had been unfaithful and find themselves in exile. But among the exiles, there was indeed a faithful remnant. But the people of God are right where God said they would be if they walked away. Now, there have been three deportations. The first one is the elite were taken. That's Daniel chapter 1 and verse 4. Uh, the nobility, uh, those in line to be kings and princes, they were taken away. Daniel's in that crowd. But then they took, uh, there was another like semi-coup in Jerusalem, so Babylon came back down a few years later and took another 10,000. That's when Ezekiel goes off. And finally, there was some miserable coup that didn't work and a rabble was left and the rest of them were taken in a migration to Babylon where they stayed for 70 years until God fulfilled the promise and brought them back into the land. The people of God are marooned in exile. Secondly, 
God sustains the hope of his promise through his own faithfulness. There was a future and a hope for Israel, but it was not in their obedience or not in their faithfulness. It was not in their being a faithful Yahwist and faithful in Judaism because they were not faithful and they were carried off. But there was a future for the people of God because God kept his promise. Do you have a peg at home on which you put any coats or hats you say, well, where is that? Oh, it's, it's hanging over there on that peg, and that peg is holding it up. Well, the peg holding up the future for the people of God was the integrity of God who promised to keep his promises to Abraham. And not only in the past, in the ancient Near East, 600 years before Jesus comes, was the people of God's hope hung on the peg of God's integrity to his word and his faithfulness, so is ours the reason why we can have a future and a hope has nothing to do with us and everything to do with the integrity of God who has promised. He cannot lie and he's faithful to his promise. Look at Abraham's people and watch redemptive history. Chapter 2 verse 13 is actually a great moment. The decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Can you imagine if it was not enough to be taken forcibly from your home away to Babylon where you are indoctrinated in a repatriation school in Babylon? If that was not enough, then you rise and you're recognized as kind of the cream of the crop and then you're asked by the king, the great potentate, and his authority uh, was levied over everything. You're asked by the king to become an assassin. And so here's faithful Daniel who finds himself being commanded to kill the other counselors. That was a tough moment. But here's this leader, Daniel, who in this tough spot turns to seek the Lord. By the way, it's the greatest gesture in all tough spots is to turn and seek the Lord, which is just exactly what he does. Now, the, the third thing I want you to recognize in this piece of history from the Old Testament is a frightened man's comment gives insight into the meaning of Christmas. Here's a counselor who realizes Nebuchadnezzar is not going to tell him the dream and he's going to have to figure out what he dreamed. And not only, that's the hard part. And then the next hard thing was to tell the king what the dream meant and what was communicated to the dream. So he offers this offhand quip in verse 11. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods. Notice the last six words. Whose dwelling is not with flesh. What he was lamenting is that he did not have access to what only God would know and what only God could do. And apart from that access, he was being asked to do something impossible or else he would be executed. And faced with the, I can't do it because it's impossible, uh, be executed, he, he 
exclaims, if only we had access to God in flesh, then we could solve this riddle and get this done. In that comment, we see vividly what Christmas is about. This is akin to that comment. Remember Caiaphas, uh, the Pharisees are meeting in a court, and the high priest at the time, Caiaphas, during the time of Christ, are trying to figure out what to do with Jesus. And he pipes up in the middle of the meeting. He says this, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people than that the whole nation should perish. They were talking about what to do with Jesus. And they finally said, let's just kill him. Because if we let him go, he's going to ruin the whole country. So let's have one guy die on behalf of the whole country. He was pragmatically trying to solve the problem of, that Jesus was creating for the first century religious crowd. But the text goes on to say, he did not say this of his own accord, but being a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. It was just a quip in a meeting. But of all things, that quip in the meeting gives insight into the fact that God had planned all along that the nation would not perish in their sinful rebellion, but God was sending Jesus to humanity so that we would not perish in our rebellion, but could find in him, God in human flesh, a remedy to this peril of being separated from him. It's better for one man to die than for the whole nation to have to face it. And that gives insight into Good Friday and what Good Friday means. In that same way, this wild quip from a threatened man when he says, no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh, yearning all the while that God would put skin on and be with them and save them. He was anticipating Christmas. Still this morning, good news of great joy for all people, a Savior's born. It was Christ the Lord. Here the man confesses that he needs what only God could supply. Only a present God could help. Enter Christmas. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, dwelled among us, and we beheld his glory, glory of the only unique Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Or Gabriel's shorthand. Call his name Emmanuel, for he is God with us. Does A, B, and C sound familiar? The people of God are marooned in exile. God sustains the hope of his promise through his own faithfulness. A frightened man's comment gives insight into Christmas. Whose dwelling is not with flesh. When a, secondly, let's turn. Why does Jesus' coming still matter? Why celebrate Christmas? Does it make any difference? Do we even understand it? Are we culturally getting farther and farther and farther away from its meaning? I was taking a prayer walk this week and uh, you know, people decorate their house. They put stuff in their yards. And, 
Uh, I came up upon a uh, nativity scene. It's one of those larger ones in the yard. And then it was synchronized with lights that were going on with music. And I thought, oh, this is going to be great. You know, just stop here for a moment of worship. So I, I go over and I stand on the sidewalk. I'm looking up and here's their nativity scene. You know, and it's jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle bell rock. And I thought, well, I was anticipating just a little bit different, you know. But <laughs> we've, we, we've. We've gummed this up with a lot of extras. And in the gumming, we're getting farther and farther and farther away from the glory of God taking up our human flesh and coming here to deliver us as exiles away from him in our sin. Wow. Let me describe three ways to unpack how big Christmas and the coming of Jesus Christ still matters First, we are these counselors doomed to die without access to God. Look at verse 13. Look at verse 24. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went in and said to them, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king and I will show the king the interpretation because God graciously revealed it to him. In 2.12, the edict is to destroy all the wise men. But the imperative in verse 9 betrays what Nebuchadnezzar, who was an egomaniac, what Nebuchadnezzar actually thought of his wise men and their counsel. He didn't make a lot of their wisdom. If you do not make the dream known to me, chapter 2, verse 9, there is but one sentence for you. You've agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Well, the times have just changed. You're not going to get away with telling me just whatever you want to tell me now. I need the straight stuff. What was my dream? And what does it mean? Remember how full of authority and how fearful the king's edicts were. Think of Esther when Mordecai says, just go in and talk to the king. Esther says, are you kidding me? You're asking me to go in to the king uninvited? Do you realize what peril I put my life in? If he hasn't asked me to come, he can order that I be killed right away. This is Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 1. Remember, he's the cupbearer for the king. He's at the very top, and, and he's just lamenting Jerusalem's destruction. He's lamenting that the people of God are in a sorry place, and, uh, and their homeland is all tore up, and he's serving the king, and the king looks at him and says, Hey, Nehemiah, you look sad today. Now, that could be, in the ancient world, the functional equivalent of, Hey, I don't want anybody sad around me. I want all happy people. You're dead. The first day, the first hour that Saddam Hussein took over in a regime in Iraq, the parliament was meeting. And he imposed his will with others on the parliament and actually came into authority that day. The first thing he did was he had pre-prepared some of his goons who were there and he read a name. The goons came down, drugged the guy to the aisle, took him out in the hallway, and the next thing you hear are gunshots. Then he read another name, and he read another name, and he read another name, and that's how he started, because that's what a king's edict is like. These magicians know that they are walking dead men unless they get access 
to what only God could provide. But if they get access to what God could provide, they're going to live. And there's hope. But their hope is not in the fancy stories that they make up about what he dreamed. Their hope is singularly in something that they could not provide themselves. Only God could make the provision. The only hope for these under a sentence of death was a revelation from God. There was no human answer to this dilemma. Nor is there a human answer to the dilemma of our sinful indulgence and our estrangement from God. But there is an answer in Christmas. Because in Christmas, the infinite, eternal God became man inseparably united in one person, Jesus Christ our Lord. So, in fact, wise guy counselor, his dwelling is now in flesh in the coming of Jesus to Bethlehem. 2.11 makes the argument that Christmas is a pretty big deal that matters a lot. Now, I ask you this morning, knowing that we are these counselors. What does Daniel seek from God? You notice verse 18, and he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. What we get in Jesus Christ in Bethlehem is the embodied mercy of God. By the way, a body that he would offer on the cross to turn back God's wrath against our sin. A body that he would raise to give us eternal hope. And everyone who recognizes their sin and places their faith in Jesus Christ is delivered from exile and a hopeless bondage and brought through this Jesus who came in human flesh into a relationship with God because Jesus indeed brings us access to God. Have you given your life to Jesus Christ? Do you understand that God made Christmas and sent Jesus so we could have access to him? You say, Eric, I don't get that curtain part. You know, why'd the curtain split on Good Friday? Because that curtain splitting is a monument to the new and living way that Jesus offers to people in the exile of our own sin to come right in and relate to God. Indeed, he is the door not one that swings physically, but one who offers access into the very presence of God. Secondly, we need our Daniel. We are these counselors. We need our Daniel. A greater Daniel stepped in to save us in Bethlehem. Look at verses 14, 15, and 16. This train is taking off. Verse 14, the killing parties are already underway. He has to find Arioch and tell him, hey, look, I, I don't know if this is a good idea. Let's think this through. Give me some time. Here, Daniel sticks his neck out. He goes from being assigned an executioner to being an intermediary. He goes to a priestly function. He literally stands between death for these counselors who are hopelessly unable to give the interpretation to this dream, and the king 
who doesn't care one wisp about life and is actually a treacherous egomaniac who said, kill those guys. Somebody stood between them and said, no, we're not going to do this. We're going to seek God. And in seeking God's mercy, provided a way that that group could have life, that's Christmas. There is no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, our Lord. Norman Geisler said, if you want to understand the Bible, look for Jesus. Where's Jesus in Daniel 2? Jesus is the greater Daniel who stands between doomed humanity and the authority of a holy God who justly condemns sin and offers himself to bring those parties together in God's mercy. Christmas is right here in Daniel chapter 2. Jesus, here is Jesus. He's our deliverer. Christmas is God stepping in to save us. Jesus is the greater Daniel who has come to take away our sentence of death. Finally, we yearn for permanence. We are the counselors. We need our Daniel and one greater than Daniel. And we yearn for permanence. Jesus' kingdom will last forever. As he tells them this dream and ticks off the kingdoms of the world, the Sumerian culture gave rise to the Babylonian Chaldean culture. That was the greatest kingdom. That's Nebuchadnezzar. He would have loved hearing that part of the interpretation of the dream. Then that gave rise to the Medo-Persian Empire. That eclipsed, the, the Medo-Persian Empire was eclipsed by the Greeks. Alexander eclipsed by the Roman Empire that dissolves into uh, a, a, a structure, just the clay feet in the mix of strong parts and weak parts. By the way, isn't it amazing the influence that the Bible has had on the vocabulary of Western culture and English? He, he, we all have clay feet. You say, Eric, where'd that ever come from? It comes from Daniel chapter 2. But there's a little rock. Nobody would have bet on the little rock. A little rock not hewn by human hands. And here Daniel sees in the dream God revealing to Nebuchadnezzar the coming of Jesus. But he's going to come and crush the last semblances of every empire on earth to usher in a kingdom that will last forever and that is permanent. One of the maddening experiences of life in a broken world is nothing is permanent. It's all impermanent. And we have to absorb loss after loss after loss. I want you to know that when we attach ourselves to Jesus Christ, our Lord, we lay hold of a kingdom that shall never be shaken. Or what John says in Revelation eleven fifteen, there's going to be a day when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Did you note what he says about the permanence of this kingdom in verse 35, but the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Notice 
verses 44 and 45, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The living God revealed to Nebuchadnezzar that his kingdom would not last, nor does any earthly kingdom. And he revealed to Nebuchadnezzar that he was bringing about a kingdom in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that would last forever. We who know Jesus Christ as Savior are citizens of such a kingdom that will last forever and ever. Jesus was frank with Nicodemus when he said, except a man be born again, he will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Have you entered God's kingdom by acknowledging your sin before a God who is holy and recognizing that in Jesus, God surmounted the obstacles to give us access to him. I invite you to Christ. This morning, the 19th century governance was different than our own century. Uh, government was a lot smaller, a lot simpler. Uh, even in the 1860s, there was still the habit that if you wanted to see the president, you just go and stand in line at the White House. Now, the lines got longer and longer. They've changed that practice. And they, there were a little bit of long lines in the 1860s, and one day a man was earnest and took great effort and got to the White House and got in line and was there for a long time and got tired and got discouraged watching the sequence, believing I'm never going to get in. I don't have access. I can't get in. And tired, he looked down the hallway to a bench in some place in the White House and he went over and sat on the bench, was sad and forlorn and given up hope before he left. And about that time, a young man sauntered down the hallway like he owned the place. It's a little strange to him. He looked at him and said, Sir, what's wrong with you? And he was startled by it. He said, You look sad. He said, Oh, I've come here to meet the president. And the line's too long. And I've waited for hours, and I'm not going to get in. And I'm tired. And I sit down. I've given up. What? You want to see the president? Come with me. It was Tad Lincoln, who was a little boy, wandering around the White House. And he ushered the man right into the presence of Abraham Lincoln. He got to him. But the only way to him is through his son. That's Christmas. Heaven showed up in Christmas and offers to everyone who would believe on our Lord Jesus Christ the hope of eternal life. I'm for Christmas, aren't you? Amen. Father, I don't know who's here and who will want to use this time of personal prayer for what? But I know that you love humanity. That's obvious to us in Bethlehem. I know that you love humanity. That's obvious to us 
at Calvary's cross. And I know you desire the best things for us as our creator in relating to you and bringing us to hope. We see that on Easter morning. Lord, for the discouraged today, I pray that you would lift them up to see that indeed, here comes heaven. Father, for those estranged from you who've really never understood that they cannot save themselves, but that they don't have to. You provided such means in Jesus. I pray that you would open their heart to this good news about Jesus, even this morning. For those who are just tired in the way, they're discouraged, remind them that it's still good news this morning and that we've received a kingdom that can never be shaken. For some troubled by news cycles and the kingdoms of this earth and their machinations, and oh Lord, remind them that this rock, not of human origin, not made with human hands, has been hewn out and will one day bust every kingdom of this world to pieces and establish a rule that will never end. Wow, what a savior. We love you. We worship you. God, may you find in us responsive hearts and may the spirit of God take the word and drive it home to bring our wills and our conscience and our minds right to where they need to be. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. With a prayerful and responsive heart, let's stand and sing.